0: You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network. Featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California. Presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to and now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is Served.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Justice is Served. This is the show where we give you the latest in legal news. I am your host, Mari Fagel, and I'm joined today by my lovely co host, Rawa Gebre A. Hello, everyone. And uh, we have two special guest callers on the line, Professors Sharice Kubrin and Eric Nielsen. Hello to both of you. Hello. Hello. And uh, I want to tell my viewers first before we get into the interview about how I came to book you both as guests. Uh, For the viewers who've tuned into our shows in the past, we did a show on their op-ed that they published in the New York Times called Rap Lyrics on Trial. It was specifically about the case of Vontae Skinner, a man sentenced to 30 years for attempted murder on very weak evidence. Much of of the evidence that convicted him was rap lyrics that he had written before the crime. Uh, That case is building its way up through up to the Supreme Court now, the New Jersey State Supreme Court. uh, And we will ask both uh, Sharice and Eric about an update on that case. But first, uh, once I read that op ed, I was really outraged about kind of this phenomenon going on of rap lyrics being used as evidence against criminal defendants in trials. Because in my mind, uh, for the most part, that would be prejudicial information that would bias a jury. What I mean by that is a jury or the finder of fact would, you know, hear evidence of these violent rap lyrics and make the assumption or the leap that because this person wrote those lyrics, this person has a predisposition to be violent. That must, must mean that this person committed that crime. And in my mind, that is so unfair. I, it, it was troubling to hear that that phenomenon is going on. So, Sharice and Eric, first I wanted to ask you, you wrote uh, this study I have in my hand, Rap on Trial. Uh Tell me about how you came to collaborate, and tell me specifically about the Odawale case, which brought the two of you together.
2: Sure, I'll jump in on that. And in fact, the outrage that you're expressing is exactly what brought Eric and I together to collaborate on this paper. But I was contacted uh, back in 2011 by a lawyer who had come across a paper that I had written that involved an analysis of – 400 gangster rap songs, and the lawyer was interested in knowing whether I'd be willing to serve as an expert witness on the Odawale case, and this basically involved a case where um, Odawale was a student at Edwardsville uh, University in Southern Illinois University, and his car ran out of gas, um, forcing him to abandon it on campus, and when the school authorities found his car, they found a piece of paper in the car's console that was hidden, and um, on one side was lyrics, everybody agreed with lyrics. And on the other side of the note was more lyrics followed by six lines of text. And this is upon which the entire case rests, these six lines of text. The state basically claimed that these were a threat. And Tosin and his defense claimed that they were essentially new ideas for a new rap song or the beginning stages of rap lyrics. And so they asked me to come on and analyze these six lines of text in the context of hundreds and hundreds of pages of rap lyrics that Tosin himself had created. And I was called on to testify... Where I explained what rap music was, I discussed the subgenre of gangster rap. I provided lots of examples of it in his notebooks. I talked about the six lines of text, made numerous examples, and then at the end of the day, um, they they declared Tosin guilty and he was sentenced to five years in prison. Now at the time I didn't know Eric, but he was also outraged by this um, by this case and was writing op-eds, and we got introduced uh, through the lawyer on this case, started talking and realized this is not just a case that's happening with um Olotoso This is actually happening more and more often.
1: And I just want to let our viewers know some of those uh, six lines that ended up becoming the basis of his conviction for making a threat or making a terrorist threat. Uh, it says... Uh, Glock to the head of send $2 to PayPal account. If this account doesn't reach $50,000 in the next seven days, then a murderous rampage rampage similar to the VT shooting will occur at another highly populated university. This is not a joke. These right. th- These were just words that were found in a compartment in his car. Correct. Yeah, and I mean
2: initially it is. These are very strong, strong lyrics. They they evoke a lot of violence. There's a, 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 a an apparent quote unquote threat involved. But if you looked in the context of all of the lyrics that Tosin himself had written over the years as an aspiring rapper, and nobody doubted that he was an aspiring rapper, these were pretty par for the course for the kinds of lyrics that he wrote. And frankly, these are just basic gangster rap lyrics. People that listen to gangster rap. Know the subgenre are common. Are, are th- these are common lyrics um, for that kind of subgenre?
3: Charis, I'd, I'd be really curious to know what the composition of the jury was, if if you can recall, and if you feel that had an impact on. It um, was
4: all white.
3: <laughs> yeah, and I will never <laughs> forget Thanks, the day Harriet. I walked into
2: the courtroom to testify and looked over at the mm-hmm. jury, and not only were they all white, but they were typically older, um, and. I later found out almost none of them had any experience listening to rap music, let alone gangster rap. So that was the context in which they were hearing (laughs) these these lyrics.
3: That explains a lot. And
4: your your question about the the jury also sort of, you know, it raises the the racial implications of this discussion, and it 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 probably doesn't come as a surprise to you um, or to... Um, to anybody who sort of is engaged in this conversation, that the vast majority of the defendants in these cases are young men of color. Um, and so, you know, I think your question was sort of starting to get at um, the underlying, some of the underlying issues at work here, too.
1: And uh, the Otawale case was unique in that the lyrics themselves and the words he wrote themselves were the basis of the crime that he was charged with. Uh, But several of the other cases that you profile in your study are, uh, you know, violent crimes that they these people are charged with, but then the lyrics being used as evidence. Uh, so I want to talk about one of those cases that you mentioned in the study, just because of it really stood out to me, jumped out to me, because of the stark sentence of death in this case. This man was sentenced to death. Uh, Ronell Wilson was uh, charged with killing two detectives in Brooklyn, uh when the police arrested him, they found scraps of paper in his pocket with handwritten ly- rap lyrics discussing a killing. Those rap lyrics were introduced at trial and he was ultimately found guilty and then sentenced to death. Can you tell me about that case and what uh effect you think the reading of the rap lyrics had on his uh his verdict?
4: What well, I, I, I want to back up just for a second and say that the Oda case is not as unique as we may have initially thought. Um, you, you know, you noted that that was a case where the lyrics themselves were the kind, the content of the lyrics themselves were the sole basis for these charges. And in fact, we're turning up more and more of those cases where the actual rap lyrics. Uh, are being treated as, for example, uh, terrorist threats or threats against other individuals. And I could probably name a few cases right now um, where that's going on. Um, In the case of, but but you you are right, Um, the vast majority of cases that we're finding um, involve rap lyrics as evidence of a defendant's involvement in some other crime, right? You commit, you're accused of murder, bring in rap lyrics, gangster rap lyrics that uh, have uh, these depictions of murder and you sort of try to connect the dots. Um, the Ron L. Wilson case is interesting. Uh it, it, it went on for a number of years, and to be honest with you, I'm not sure when the lyrics, if the lyrics were introduced during the guilt phase, but they were certainly introduced during the sentencing phase. Um, and that is something that we're finding more and more of as well. I mean, as Charis and I have, Explored this topic and started researching it in real detail. What we're finding is that rap lyrics are showing up at all stages of the criminal justice process. So, and that makes it that makes it very, very difficult, frankly, to to quantify. Um, but it means that we're seeing cases where people are being indicted. Um, thanks to um, rap lyrics, in fact we're working on looking at a case right now um, out in California um, involving uh, rap videos um, that ended up in the indictment uh, of an aspiring rapper. Um, we're finding them in trials, we're finding them in sentencing hearings, um, we're finding that they become, uh, less officially they become leverage uh, for prosecutors um, to compel a plea bargain. Uh, because of course, defendants and their defendants are, defense attorneys are not stupid. They know how, as you said at the beginning, how prejudicial, how powerful these can be. And so, to take it back to the Ronald Wilson case, you know, I can't I can't tell you in that case what role the rap lyrics played, but I can tell you that based upon our research and some empirical research um, conducted, you know, in the 1990s, for example, that they do exert um, a significant impact. On jurors.
3: In your experience, uh, how would you say that prosecutors are actually accounting for these cases, where or these instances where rap lyrics are written or composed months or or years ahead of or before any alleged incidents occur? Um, I'd be I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts on the,
4: the, that. The motive or intent. I mean, it, 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 they, those are the, the they have two ways really. I mean, I, I don't like I don't I don't want to get too caught up in the in the legal justifications because it, regardless of how they're doing it the underlying assumption is that they're just negating rap music as art um, and, 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 and suggesting or saying outright that they are accurate reflections of the uh, author's mindset or behavior but in the case of lyrics that are written well in advance um they it, they introduce them as, um, evidence of a defendant's knowledge, identity, um, that kind of thing with respect to the crime. That's what they say. Um, but that is not, in my view, why they are actually bringing them in. Generally, you can't say to the judge, um, I would like to bring these in to smear the defendant's character. Uh, but that is, I believe, exactly what they're trying to do, Say that they will look for any legal justification they can to get the lyrics in front of the jury um, so that they can achieve the prejudicial... In um, fact, they can't admit that they're trying to achieve.
1: And I just want to explain to some of our viewers and listeners that uh, normally past acts, past incidents, uh, past behavior by a defendant would be considered mm-hmm. character evidence that cannot be used in the present case against them. But there are certain exceptions to that general rule. And the exceptions mm-hmm. would be if those prior acts uh, or, you know, prior instances of behavior go to uh, the defendant's motive, you know, the reason yes. why they decided to carry out the crime, go to knowledge, oh, I, I knew it was illegal, go to uh, their intent, I plan to do this, go to their identity. You know, this person has acted this way in so many specific instances, these several times times it has to be this person so there's certain exceptions where um, prior acts are able to be introduced to a jury and it is the judge's role as the gatekeeper of facts uh, to decide what the jury can and cannot hear it is the judge's role to weigh the evidence and decide whether the jury hearing that information will be unfairly biased and they will make an assumption that's outside of the facts of the case they will make an assumption because this person wrote these rap lyrics you you know months before this crime, that must mean that they committed this crime. So, so tell me, Sharice uh, and Eric, how is it? Do you think that uh, judges are lacking in their role as gatekeeper?
2: I mean, I think Charles, judges, you going to handle that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I was going to say, I mean, I think judges are no different from a lot of the players in the courtroom, which is that they're not, they don't have intimate knowledge about rap music themselves. And so I don't, I'm not quite sure that it's intentional, but on the other hand, they're, they're also assuming that these are autobiographical confessions of behavior, right? Or, um, and, and the assumptions along with that has been therefore. um, Right, It should be admitted as evidence, and we certainly um, don't need a, an expert witness or someone else to, to, to explain the lyrics because there's nothing to explain. It's just somebody c- confessing to a crime, right? But I do think judges need to be held accountable for the fact that they are letting these lyrics in. I mean, one question I get a lot is, well, are defense attorneys putting up a fight to have these lyrics out? And the answer is absolutely yes. Every yes. defense attorney I've spoken with And in the cases that I've testified in, they are filing pretrial motions. They are collecting as much information about the about how these lyrics are problematic as evidence. They are consulting with Eric and I. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, we get we have been getting so many calls and requests for this paper, partly because this is this is a new issue, but it's becoming a very common issue. And how do they explain to the judge and the prosecutor and the juries that this is not right as evidence? That this is Artistic expression; it is not literal. It's not literal.
4: Then they make very they, they they make good. They make salient points. Their claim, you know, the, the 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 arguments that defense attorneys generally make are, in my mind, um, the ones I've seen, and I've seen a number of them, are thorough. Um, they're on point, um, mm-hmm. but they usually fail. Um, mm-hmm. So judges will hear these and. Um, still admit rap lyrics as evidence. I mean, the New Jersey ACLU took a small subset of cases. I think they looked at like 18, maybe. It was, it was 18. And they found in these 18 cases, where the admissibility of rap lyrics was at issue, um, almost 80% of the time they were allowed in as evidence. And it's judges not just at the trial level who are uh, asleep at the wheel, but it's also at the appellate level. Um, because when these cases go on for appeal, they are generally unsuccessful also. Either the appellate court will say, yeah, the the lyrics were were admissible, or they will find, well, yeah, it was probably an error, but it would not have impacted the overall outcome, that it was a harmless error. And so um, judges throughout this process um, are, are, in, in my view, improperly admitting this the, the, yeah. this art as, as, as evidence.
3: At first glance, these the dangers in using a form of artistic expression to convict seem really dangerous, uh, particularly since it seems limited to rap music. I mean, we're not seeing people in rock really being... Uh, yeah, pop, yeah, pop, or uh, writers um, of, of books, nope. or in in other mediums, artistic mediums. But short of uh, prohibiting lyrics, as evidence in um, cases like uh, the Vontae Skinner case, um, what can be done to address these inherent biases that mostly young black men are confronted with? <laughs> well, I, know that's that's, big, I know that's I know I know a big umbrella. Yeah. yeah, yeah, a lot of answers. We've I mean, there's of, there's uh, yeah. yeah, you want
2: to take the bigger picture, and I'll take the more practical right now, what we can do? No,
4: no I okay. want you to have the bigger picture.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the bigger picture is Eric and I feel that, that lyrics should not be let, permitted, period. I mean, yeah. and especially, right. I mean, if, if lyrics are the basis of your case, you have no case. That's something that we argue, right? The lyrics of songs are speech. And we know the First Amendment protects expression, even when it's offensive, which rap music certainly can be. Um, but still, rap music, no matter how violent the imagery or how misogynistic the views express, we feel is constitutionally protected speech, and it should be treated as such in the way that we treat other, um, you know, other forms of artistic expression. Um, but, that said, I, I don't see that. I yeah, sorry, Eric. You go. Well, I was just
4: going to say I would. I would also add that we let's go ahead and apply rules that are already there. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, rules of evidence um, that you know a judge is supposed to sort of weigh the uh, probative value or the usefulness of the evidence against its prejudicial impact or what it might cause a jury to do. You know, what kinds of decisions it might cause a, j- a jury to make. And I really can't. I can't think of a scenario. Any scenario in which rap music um, will pass that test. It is a fictional form. It is one that has a long tradition of exaggeration, and in the case of the gangster subgenre, a long tradition of graphic depictions of violence. Um, But it's also one that has a long tradition of figurative rather than literal language. We're talking metaphors, similes. Um, That makes it inherently unreliable, as evidence. And so I think that um, significantly undermines any probative value. At the same time, we know that they will be highly prejudicial. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't stop short of saying that you should never use lyrics. I would say you should never use lyrics.
2: <laughs> and uh, let me add one thing, sort of a practical, because I think that, you know, the, the, that's sort of the big picture goal here. On the other hand, right, as we sit here talking on the phone, Um, you know, individuals are being tried with the lyrics. And so I do think, we, Eric and I say this in our paper, we do think it's really important for, at a minimum, those involved in the courts to be cognizant of rap um, as a complex, highly sophisticated form of poetry um, with lyrics that by convention, rely on things like hyperbole, metaphor, right? And that those that are involved in these cases need to be careful not to assume that the lyrics are autobiographical or inculpatory, right? That's kind of a message that needs to be expressed to the players involved, especially the jurors, because if they have no prior knowledge about rap music, Mm -hmm. and they're hearing these lyrics for the first time, it is going to be impactful. And so it providing the context for them in which to interpret the lyrics, I think, is very, very important.
1: And now, Eric, uh, you mentioned that it is rare that uh, an appellate court will uh, say that the use of evidence is indeed prejudicial, but that is what happened in the Vontae Skinner case. Uh, In that case, it has gone up to the state Supreme Court. Uh, So tell me what's happening in that case, because we want to have you back on in the future, hopefully, uh, once, you know, that case progresses, because it could be kind of the, a, a solution, at least in that state, uh, if, if the state Supreme Court does decide that the use of this evidence was indeed prejudicial.
4: That's right. I mean, and, and you're right that there have been some notable exceptions to um, the claim I made that appeals are generally uh, generally fail. For example, uh, Mad- the Massachusetts, uh, Supreme Court, uh, a year or two ago, um, overturned a verdict based upon the inappropriate use of rap videos. Um, and there was another one, I think, a year before that in Maryland. So there have been some cases. Um, however, the majority, um, have, ha- have gone the other way. Um, the most recent being the Nevada Supreme Court, which um, although it was a split decision like the New Jersey decision um it uh, they, they did find that the rap lyrics were admissible now in this case um it's it, Vontae skinner um he's he's had to wait a long time and it's uh his the arguments have been put off twice um due to weather they are scheduled i believe and this isn't posted to the New Jersey Supreme Court website yet but i've i've heard this from the New Jersey ACLU that um April 9th is the date for arguments and it dep- it, you know what, how they rule um, could have some effect. Certainly, as you said, in the state of New Jersey, um, but it depends on what they do. I mean, the, the the New Jersey ACLU wants them to, I mean, obviously find that this is you know the, these lyrics were not uh, should not have been admitted as evidence, but also wants the court to provide stricter guidelines um, for lower courts to use when deciding whether or not to admit this kind of, uh, of evidence. And while I, I'm very skeptical that it will go far enough if they do that, that would be a useful and important first step in this uh, broader discussion.
1: Well, we'll see what happens in that case. That would be a step in the right direction. I want to ask you both uh, where our viewers and listeners, if they want to find out more, uh, where they can reach you both and learn more about
2: RAP on Trial. Well, we have our paper posted in several locations, um, including our web pages. So you can find me uh, at, on, on the UCI um, Department of Criminology Law and Society webpage under Charis Kubrin with access to the paper and other related papers there.
4: Right. And the journal that we published our longer study in um, is called Race and Justice, and if the paper is published there online, the print edition will be available. Um, and, and for people who just want a sort of primer on the issue, I think our New York Times op-ed, the one that you sort of opened with, um, would be a good um, starter. Um, I've written a couple of op-eds for um, the Atlantic and Huffington Post that sort of cover similar ground but with other cases. Um, that's a good way to start. But I think our, our, the paper that we just published um, a couple of weeks ago in Race and Justice um, will provide the best um, overview. Oh, and also Andrea Dennis, um, who's at the University of Georgia Law School. She's a professor there. She wrote what is probably the seminal paper on this topic in 2007. Um, and so uh, I, I forget the, exa- the exact name of the journal that it appears in, but it's a law review article. Uh, it's Andrea Dennis, 2007. Um, that is also a really, really good uh, and important article on this
1: well, I want to thank you both for joining us today. Uh, I really appreciate having an honest conversation about this issue yes. because when I first read about it, as I said, I was outraged. So uh, I was happy to see, Eric, you reached out to me on Twitter after our episode aired. And I uh, am very happy to have you both discuss this important issue with us. Uh, and thank you both for being with us today.
2: Thank you very
4: much. Thank you for having us and for drawing attention to this.
1: Well, that was Eric Nielsen and Sharice Kubrin. Uh, If you want to look up more, they said it's in race and justice wrap on trial. Uh, We will come back to discuss our three cases for on the docket our legal roundup of news of the week uh but before we do we have a quick video from our founders of black hollywood live maria menounos and kevin undergaro the two of them are in an amazing new reality show called chasing maria menounos i just watched the first episode on tuesday and uh here we have the video for you guys
3: Tuesdays on Oxygen. I'm Maria Menounos, and my
1: life can get a little crazy. I host Extra. I'm an actor, producer, dancer, wrestler, and a lot of other things. I live with Kevin, my boyfriend of 15 years.
3: Do you really love me?
0: I would say that I'm in serious like.
1: And my parents. Yep. I just said I live with my
2: parents. You drive me crazy. You
1: drive me crazy. My parents want us to get married.
2: You both love each other. Get married.
1: Kevin and I don't. Tomorrow, I am going to get married when I want to get married. I think I want kids. Kevin definitely doesn't want them now.
2: This is being pushed on to us. And of course, my parents wanted them yesterday. This year, you got to have And I have a house full of people counting on me financially. If I take my eye off the ball, everything can fall apart.
4: It doesn't matter
1: what anybody else thinks or wants us to do. It's what we want to do.
2: Everyone things that they know what's best for me but i'm really the only one i have got to figure things
3: out chasing maria Menunos is so new every tuesday at 10 9 central starting march 18 only on oxygen okay and we're back we've got we've got three stories to talk about today on the docket and uh, let's go ahead and kick this off um first one oscar pistorius uh the trial in south africa um, is in its third week now, and a lot has happened in the past week. I know we've covered um, the trial in weeks past here on the show, but um, there have been some developments. Uh, first, a police ballistics expert testified, and um, it, was, it wasn't it was a pretty sight. Uh, Oscar was visibly um, sickened by the description of the gunshots to um to his now deceased girlfriend, Reba Steenkamp. Visibly sickened,
1: meaning his fingers were in his ears going like that for the judge yeah. to see. Yeah, he, he
3: looked like he was going to throw up. It, um, it Which it, he already has twice. Yes, uh, so it wouldn't have been wholly surprising um, if, if it had happened again, um, but the the description of the of the bullet wounds uh, was particularly gruesome. There was also a blood spatter analyst who um, who testified as to where the blood went based on the various uh, shots to Rena, um, and uh, there was also. Testimony from the man who devised South Africa's gun safety uh, laws saying that Oscar essentially broke every law of gun safety uh, when he fired off into his bathroom. Um I'd really like to know what you you've, you've covered this this case and in, in, in this trial for for some time now, and you've covered it really well, Mari. So I'd be curious to know uh, what are your thoughts on the testimony of the ballistics expert. I mean, when he described those bullets, um, how they were um, the type of bullets that when shot they almost expand like talons, um, essentially tearing out people's insides when they're when they're shot, or the targets' insides when they're shot, um, and and all the different places in which. Um, Uh, The victim was shot as well. What do you make of it? I mean, it was very graphic, gruesome testimony.
1: You mentioned that Oscar Pistorius had a visual reaction to it. Her mother was there uh, when this was going on as well. It was just interesting to me – the pattern of how it happened, she was first hit in her right hip. She then crossed her arms over her head and it bruised her back. Then the third and fourth shots were in her right arm and her head. I know that they were very fast, but in my mind, if the first hit was to the hip, you would scream. Uh, even if it's happening very fast, boom, boom, you know, boom, boom, uh, right arm, head. You know, it, it all happened very fast, but... Uh, in my mind, it wasn't like the head came first. Because if the shot to the head came first, then I would believe Oscar in saying he he didn't know who it was and that there were no woman screams. But the fact that the first shot came to the hip, in my mind, would um, make sense why the neighbors that your witnesses heard a woman's blood curdling scream. Uh, so to me, the pattern was interesting. Uh, Another thing that was interesting to me, and I want to ask you about this, Rawa, was the gun safety expert you mentioned, you know, he said that he broke every gun safety law in the book. Uh, He said that Oscar knew these laws. Oscar had taken gun safety courses. He knew what was reasonable and what was not. Uh, Obviously, there was evidence last week about, you know, him shooting through the sunroof of a car, a gun going off in a restaurant. You know, he has been very risky with guns in the past, but it was important to me me this gun safety expert saying he knew the law and he broke every rule in the book the reason why in my mind that's so important is because that i think will stop him from getting acquitted of this murder fully basically uh he could either get uh be Found guilty of premeditated murder, meaning he intended to kill Reva Steenkamp. He knew as her, he intended to kill her, uh, which is what the prosecution is claiming. You know, they had a loud argument. She went into the bathroom to hide. He intended to kill her. Or a lesser charge, kind of a culpable homicide, uh, of that, even if. He didn't know who was behind that door. It was not reasonable to shoot through the door. Mm-hmm. It was unreasonable to not know who was on the other side of that door and shoot through it four times, anyways. Or he can be acquitted fully. If he's acquitted, they must find, or I'm sorry, they, I say they because it's juries normally. Here it's just a judge. Uh, the judge must find that he, you know, believed it was an intruder on the other side of that door, and he acted reasonably in shooting through that door four times. Um, So in my mind, the gun safety expert saying that his actions were not reasonable essentially gets him to the very least guilty of a lesser charge, which I just want to update uh, our viewers and listeners on the poll I've had on my blog, yourlegallady.com, as to what the verdict will be. Only 40% right now believe that he will be Found guilty of premeditated murder. Sixty percent believe he will be found guilty of a lesser charge, such as culpable homicide. Uh, none believe he'll be acquitted. But uh, it is interesting how that's shaping out. If you want to cast your vote, go to yourlegallady.com. dot uh, What do you think
3: about those numbers, and what's your prediction? Well, um, as to the implausibility of acquittal, I am with I am with everybody else, and and you. It's not. It's just not going to happen, in my opinion. Um, as to the gun safety, I mean, as the gun safety expert. I have some questions. I mean, in in the heat of the moment when you are in your home and you think that there's an intruder, um, are you necessarily going to follow all the right rules, all the right laws? Um, And I think there's an argument to be made for that. I don't think it will completely absolve him of any culpability, but I do think that – I do think that it – It plays a role in in, in the doubt. I mean, I think that, of course, it's not the same, but with regard to traffic laws, I mean, all of us who drive, we had to pass some type of licensing exam and um, presumably a driver's test. And uh, there are times when even the best of us, um, (laughs) best of us drivers could not necessarily follow all the rules involved with with driving. But does that necessarily – go to culpability or go to intent. Uh, not necessarily. I think there's definitely a heat of argument um, case to be made here. So we will see how this plays out. There's um, there's some interesting things happening in terms of the prosecution wrapping up the case early. Um, just on Wednesday, I believe, a uh, the the prosecutor initially listed 107 witnesses to be called, and uh, on Wednesday stated that he was close to wrapping up his case, and only 18 have testified to date. So uh, there are a couple ways this could go. Maybe there's some big new smoking gun that they need to um, the prosecution needs to evaluate, or uh, maybe. Uh, maybe the case is turned for the worst and, he, and the prosecutor doesn't think that this is going to go in the direction that he'd like it to. So we'll see how this plays out. Or maybe
1: out. they're just keeping the defense on their toes. Oftentimes they'll present a long list so that the defense thinks, I have to prepare right. for all 107 of these witnesses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're not sure as to who, who they're, you know, who they're actually going to call when it gets to trial.
3: Right. Yeah. We'll continue to see how this plays out, monitor it and um, and talk about it some more as as uh, the trial continues. Um, Next uh Next case. Next issue, Chris Brown. Um... A yes. regular on this show, regular, Chris Brown he is. <laughs> a regular on the show, and this time it makes me so sad. It really does because um, I think since the last time we've discussed him, I mean, a few a few things have come out about Chris Brown. Uh, he was uh, recently diagnosed with bipolar 2 disorder mm-hmm. and also post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, the current situation right now is a judge has ordered Chris Brown to, to remain in jail in Los Angeles until April 23rd uh, because of alleged violations while he was in rehab. and um, this complicates a case that he has that's pending in Washington, D.C., where he allegedly punched a man in the nose for attempting to take a photograph. And there's a hearing in that case the week before um, Chris can get out of jail. So there are there are a lot of complications right now. And, and the issue at stake here uh, is Chris may be in violation of his probation. And so there is going to be a hearing after um, – on April 23rd and at that point the prosecution only has to prove by a preponderance of evidence, which is essentially the proposition is more likely than not to have happened. Um, the prosecution has to has to prove that um, that Chris violated the uh, the terms of his probation. And um, according to the rehab center and what we're hearing, what we're reading, and I don't I'm not sure if all of this is confirmed yet, but what we're reading is he violated a rule that um, he must stay away from all female. Rehabbers, and apparently or allegedly he touched one's shoulder, one's elbow. Um, he left the facility for an unauthorized visit and um, refused a drug test, which later came back negative upon mm-hmm. his return. So, um, I mean, when you look at those violations just alone, they don't really seem accept- – they don't seem like uh, they would – bring back an excessive punishment but given his history um and there's there's a lot at stake here Uh the judge could essentially sentence him to the maximum amount of imprisonment for the underlying offense which was the 2009 beating of his then girlfriend pop star rihanna and um the underlying offense for which he is on probation is has a term of i think maximum is four years so we'll see how this plays out what are your thoughts on this I mean, he is a great attorney, Mark Garagos. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know
1: Mark and, um, I just think he will keep him out of jail, uh, for that maximum amount. I don't know if he can keep him out forever though. Right. Uh, but in my mind, I was thinking Mark Garagos just premiered a new show on CNN called Making the Case on Mondays. It's a great show and he had to be In trial or in court, I'm sorry, in Los Angeles this Monday for his client, Chris Brown, yet again. And I was thinking to myself, I wonder what he thought when he had to get that call again of, oh, Chris has landed himself back in jail because of some other probation violation. This is just one headache after the other. And um, when he first uh, took on Chris as a client, uh, he told me that it was right after, like, hours after he— allegedly or not allegedly he uh beat rihanna right and in 2009 and he got a call from another attorney and he he said who's chris brown and what's a rihanna (laughs) because he had no idea who chris brown was now he very well knows who chris brown is as his client uh he says that uh he has a fond admiration for chris brown i've talked to him about it and uh, hopefully we'll have him on our show in the future to discuss chris brown but um I think he will keep him out for that maximum four years, but I'm not sure as to this hearing that comes up April 23rd as to exactly what happened that led him to – end up in jail. I mean, apparently he made threatening statements during a group session, too. But the fact that he failed to take the drug test but then took it and it was negative, I mean, how did he touch the woman? If it truly was just on the shoulder of the elbow, you know, it depends on the severity of what's happened. Um, But the fact that he is getting treatment for his bipolar disorder, for his PTSD, is a step in the right direction. And we have not heard from Chris Brown in a while. I mean, I told you that uh, Chris Brown, I thought, was going to be the person we talked about most on this show and then he's been silent the last couple months as he's been in rehab and Justin Bieber has come and taken the reins
3: uh of this show right. uh
1: but now Chris Brown is coming back and I thought that he was on the right path so it's it's hard to see that um you know he he isn't getting his anger under control.
3: Right. Um. It, it, yeah. Given his recent diagnosis, I I really do hope that he's able to uh, to work this out. Wishing him the best. And um, uh, let's wrap up with our with our last story. Kanye West, another, another favorite on this another show. Another favorite. <laughs> so Kanye was um, sentenced to probation for assaulting a a, a photographer a paparazzo um, at. Uh, Los Angeles International Airport last summer, and uh, Gloria Allred, who uh, we all know and love, uh, represents the photographer, and she's saying that this is not sufficient, and she will still pursue, on behalf of her client, a, um, a vigorous um, Civil lawsuit against the rapper. And, um, this photographer is still allegedly suffering from physical and emotional, um, wounds and, uh, really believes that his case is very strong and has not, uh, has not made it apparent that he's going to settle. I mean, it looks like he wants to take this case full throttle, um, Kanye being sentenced to probation, uh, he also has been ordered to complete 24 anger management sessions and uh, 250 hours of approved community service. So although the civil case – or the criminal case is um, – seems to be at bay right now, there's a whole civil component. I mean he's, he's being sued by this photographer and the photographer does not want to settle. Usually in cases with Kanye – and it's sad that I even have to say that – in cases with Kanye because there have been several um, – you see people who are maybe looking for a quicker payday just want to mm-hmm. settle just want to get it out of the way i mean there was an incident where there was a, a young man who uh hurled allegedly hurled racial epithets at his fiance kim kardashian and um and and kanye reacted uh in a way that apparently he had to pay a settlement uh out to this out to this young man it happened very quickly and so he he's a lightning rod for this uh type of thing and, and I don't know how this is going to play out. I mean these – I know how it's going to play out. (laughs) He's going
1: to offer the big bucks eventually because he doesn't want to have a deposition. Uh, Like we saw with Justin Bieber, these celebrities, um, the people who sue them have leveraging power because uh, they can say either you offer me the big bucks or I'm going to depose you. Uh that deposition can be leaked as we saw with Justin Bieber and and you don't want that to happen as a celebrity. We saw with Paula Deen how far that can go. Awful. Uh she lost her career over that and then that case ended up being dismissed. Lady Gaga too was deposed in um a case with her personal assistant Little Wayne, and I mean, uh yeah. Goes on. Yeah, and that is kind of these people suing these celebrities have that bargaining power. They hold over their head, I will take this case all the way. I will depose you. I will get you in trial. You know, have you on the witness stand. And celebrities who are in the public eye, for the most part, don't want that negative attention. So they settle uh, for higher amounts than they probably should or would have because they want to stay out of the limelight. That's Uh, I have a feeling where that case will go just because you mentioned in the past that's what Kanye's done in the past.
3: Right. The photographer, he could be blowing smoke because he seems like he wants to take this all the way and does not want to settle. So, uh, but I don't know. Depending on the amount that's offered, maybe. Gloria Allred wants to take Mm -hmm. it all the way. Exactly. So (laughs) depending, depending on, depending on the amount offered, maybe that is the direction in, uh, in which it'll go. So we will keep our eyes um, peeled and uh, keep you informed of how this turns out.
1: And mentioning Gloria Allred, her daughter Lisa Bloom will be on our show next month to discuss her new book, Suspicious Nation, about the Trayvon Martin case. Uh, So we look forward to that. As I said, go to yourlegallady.com, cast your votes in what verdict you think Oscar Pistorius will get. Uh, right now, I said 60% believe he will be guilty of a lesser charge. 40% believe premeditated murder. Uh, weigh in. Let me know your thoughts. And thank you so much for joining us this week. We will be back next week for an all new Justice is Served.